Good morning. My name is Roy. The Old Testament reading today is found in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they, went, they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie. The New Testament reading is found in 1 John 4, verses 16 through 19. We have known and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who remain in love remain in God, and God remains in them. This is how love has been perfected in us, so that we may have confidence on the judgment day, because we are exactly the same as God is in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear expects punishment. The person who is afraid has not been made perfect in love. We love because God first loved us. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Tim. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading <clears throat> found in John 15, 13 through 16. Greater love has no, man than, no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. <clears throat> no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have been made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. So come, Holy Spirit, come and breathe again. Come and speak the word of God into our hearts and into our lives. Make us come alive. Make us new. Creator spirit, let your work of new creation continue in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We started a series last week called This Functional Family, and no doubt we're playing on how this phrase sounds, but... We're really talking about the family of God, and one of the ways the New Testament talks about a church or talks about the congregation uh, is to call it the household, the household of faith, and one of its favorite metaphors for church is that of family. Now, I realize that that could be problematic from the outset because maybe if you're uh, a, single, a single person, you're saying, oh, family, that doesn't relate to me. That's not my metaphor. Or maybe if you've come from a family of pain, you're thinking e even more so, this is a trigger for me. I, I really don't want to, to use that metaphor, to think about that. 
And so my hope, though, as we go through the series is that we will be able to unpack all of the different places of relationships in our life, even our family of origin, because all of those relationships have a way of impacting how we do relationship in church and how we do have relationships with one another. Now, instead of structuring this series by, you know, sort of stage of life, you know, dating relationships week one, marriage week two, you know, instead of structuring it that way or even going by themes, I've decided to take for our series here at New Life Downtown to take us through the lens of emotion and to focus specifically on different emotions. So last week was a bit of an introduction. This week we'll talk about fear. Next week, anger. And maybe you're wondering, wait a minute, why do this? Why talk about emotions? Because aren't emotions just sort of that touchy-feely stuff? And can't we just learn to memorize doctrine and just sort of do things the right way like logical robots, you know? The thing is, the Bible says that we are made in the image of God, and the way that it pre- the Bible presents God to us is a God that is full of emotion, a God that is profoundly moved. In fact, to be in relationship with someone requires that we are completely engaged, both in our minds and with our emotions. And so... The scriptures don't hide this from us because it wants to show us a God who is in relationship with us, with his people. And so we see a God who is compassionate and full of mercy and has pity on his people. And we see a God who is provoked to anger toward his people. And we see a God that is patient. And we see a God that is, that, that, that echoes, that, that plays out for us all of these emotions of being moved. So that we can see that to be fully human is to be in the image of God, is to have all of these things working well. The Bible talks a lot about uh, emotions like sadness and fear and anger. In fact, it spends a lot more time talking about what we might call negative emotions than it does with what we might call happier, positive emotions. It's the way of saying, look, even in your darker feelings, you need not sort of put that in a box and then come to God, but you can actually let the Lord into those darker places, and through that, the Holy Spirit can change us and work in us. And so we've been talking about how do we invite the Holy Spirit into this process so that we aren't just doing reflection on our own, but it becomes an invitation for Him to work and reform us. We're also in this series going to let science and scripture uh, work together. And that might be an interesting thing for some of you. You might think, well, I don't know about psychology and I don't know about the social sciences. But here's the thing. I believe that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? And that it's all full of the glory of God. And so science may not be able to answer the same questions that faith can answer, but it can give us a perspective. And sometimes it helps us look at issues uh, in, in a parallel and in even complementary way. So for the science of emotion, I'm leaning fairly heavily on a psychologist named Paul Ekman. Now, for me, I've come across a lot of this, uh, a lot of this literature because of part of my uh, literature review in my, in my doctoral dissertation, some of that work. I've had to interact with the psychology of emotion a little bit. And Ekman is an interesting guy. This, this is sort of his book for the layperson, Emotions Revealed. This, is, uh, this work, this book, is sort of um, the, the series, the TV series that was on Fox some years ago called Lie to Me about micro-expressions and looking at how you know, people betray their emotions. A lot of that comes from Ekman's work. But also, Ekman was one of the leading scientist consultants in that movie Inside Out. So if you like Inside Out, you already like Ekman, Okay. 
And so we're going to lean on, on Ekman a little bit to, to say, how do we understand the science of emotion? But then we're going to look at the scriptures and to say, how do we see this working itself out in relationships? And what does Jesus and the Spirit have to do with our own emotional state? Are you ready? So by way of review, last week we said, what is emotion? And we, we worked with this definition here, that emotions are a pre-reflective appraisal of the world. Without you even thinking about it, without you even being conscious, emotions kind of arise, and it's a, it's a, a sign to you of how you are assessing the world, how you are appraising the people or the situations around you. If you feel fear, it's because you've appraised that there is a threat. If you feel sadness, it's because you are perceiving a loss, and it's based on something you care about. So typically, the stronger the emotion, the stronger the, the passion, the care that it comes from. This is why last week, one of the things we said is the Holy Spirit can help us work our way backwards from an emotion to say, am I over-investing care in this or this or this? Because, wow, that was a strong emotional reaction that sort of caught me off guard. Another way of saying this is to say that emotions are the eyes of our heart. They're a way of seeing or perceiving the world. But how do emotions actually work? Before we get into talking about fear specifically, I want to say three things about how emotions work. The first is this, that emotions have a core theme, a universal theme. Decades ago, four or five decades ago, when Ekman was beginning his research into this, he had this sort of premise, he had this presupposition that emotions were just culturally conditioned responses, that if he traveled around the world, he would find that for some people this triggered anger, and for other people this was what triggered anger, and then it's all just really contextually or culturally defined. And what he discovered as he kept pressing his research into different parts of the world, even into preliterate tribes... He began to realize by showing them pictures of facial expressions and narrating stories, he began to discover that actually there are universal themes to some of the basic human emotions. Anger, for example, has the theme of injustice or some kind of obstruction to a goal. When you experience anger, it's because you're perceiving, whether it's real or not, that, that there is an injustice. I mean, when you can see this in a child when they get mad. You say, why are you mad? It's not fair. I think it was Charles Dickens who said, it's children who have an acute sense of injustice in the world. It's one of the first things we become aware of. Sadness has a theme of loss. Universally, when we are experiencing or perceiving some kind of loss, we experience the emotion of sadness. Fear, which we'll talk about this morning specifically, is about a threat, is about recognizing some kind of threat. Now, here's the thing. If you're a musician, you, you understand this analogy, but in a... In a in a score, a movie score, there is a theme, a core theme for a movie, and then there's variations of that theme, right? There's a core theme to the soundtrack of Star Wars, and then there's variations of that theme that sort of work its way in. You know, whenever Darth Vader's kind of there, you hear the dun, 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 and then it'll change, you know? There's variations of that theme. In a similar way, there are variations to these themes that we acquire from our own families of origin. So what specific version of loss triggers sadness in you? It could be associated with all kinds of things, maybe because of the home you grew up in, maybe because of the, the things you experienced, maybe because of the stories grandma told you late at night. 
You know, and you're like, I'm so scared of the neighbors, you know, because the, the, these, these, the themes were expanded in you. But not only do emotions have core themes, they also involve scripts imported from previous episodes of that emotion. Now, this is so fascinating because if you were to, to try to recall and say, when was the first time you truly felt afraid of another person? It might help you realize that that script has stayed with you and you've begun to apply that script to other situations where fear is involved. Ekman himself tells this story of um, his wife and she was also an academic and, and this was back in the day when there were no cell phones, which really wasn't that long ago. <laughs> and she was away on an academic conference and they had arranged for a time that she was going to call because that's what people did when they didn't have cell phones. They said, I'll call you at 9 o'clock. And so you roughly knew, be home, the phone's going to ring, right? I know, what a bother, right? But <laughs> so, so she's away on this trip and, um, and he's sitting by the phone at 9 o'clock and it doesn't ring. So he first starts to feel a sense of, oh, no, no big deal. Then it gets longer. It's 10 o'clock. It's 10.30. He starts to feel fear. Maybe something's happened to her. Maybe, maybe, maybe she got lost in the city. Maybe she never made her way back to the hotel. Who, who knows what's going on? He starts to feel fear. And then fear began to give way to anger because, you know, fear can trigger in us the response of either fight or flight. So he starts to get angry. Maybe she's found another nerdy scientist to be in love with. These are the nightmares nerds have, you know? I can relate. And, uh, and, so, and so he says, I don't know what's going on. I, don't, I, can't, I can't figure this. He gets really upset, but it's really all driven from this place of fear. Finally, the next morning, she calls, and she says, oh, I'm so sorry. This is what happened. We ended up, the, you know, after the conference, everyone wanted to go here. And, you know, and he realized that none of his fears were founded, but he still had a hard time kind of coming down from the emotions. He was mostly quiet on the phone and waited till he calmed down. And then he began to sort of psychoanalyze himself as a psychologist, which I can only imagine must be quite fun. <laughs> and he says, as he's writing about this, he says, you know, what he experienced as a 10-year-old boy was his, mo his mom died. His mom died when he was a child. And so very early on, he had internalized a script that said, women will abandon you. And all of a sudden, this script began to play even while he was waiting for his wife to call. It's nothing like the situation that he grew up with, but he's imported that script. And so when the phone doesn't ring, the script plays again. Aha, uh -huh, there you see. There you see. All the women in your life are going to leave you. Which brings up the third thing about emotions. That emotions can actually develop from new triggers. Can actually develop from new triggers, which maybe is a disheartening thing because you sort of hope that you could max out. And there's only 10 things that can trigger fear in my life. Turns out that database remains open. You can keep adding triggers to it. And so maybe before it was the fear of cancer taking a, a loved one, but now it's expanded to like anytime someone doesn't show up, it's another trigger and another trigger and another trigger. Your, your, your brain has a way of adding more triggers for this emotion. But you see how difficult this can be if you're adding triggers and importing scripts. Now, all of a sudden, the chances of being caught in a cycle are really devastating. We're trying to focus this morning specifically on the emotion of fear, and not just that, but fear in the context of human relationships, of our relationships with one another. What does this look like? What does this do to our lives? And when I think about this, 
fear in the context of relationships, especially even in family of origin dynamics. I think about Jacob. I think about the Bible story of Jacob. Because Jacob, this is what's amazing. Jacob, you may know this, was a twin. His brother Esau came out first. And Jacob, it said, Jacob came out grasping his heel. And so they name him Jacob, the, the one who grasps the heel. But actually, that has a connotation to it. And the connotation is, this is a cheater. This is a cheater. This is a guy who's looking to gain whatever advantage he can gain. And sure enough, Jacob lives up to his name. So early on, his brother Esau is this rugged kind of hunter who's wild at heart. And Esau, uh, Jacob is more mild at heart. Who He says he liked to dwell in the tents. Not a bad thing. But so his hunter, comes, uh, hunter brother comes back and is starving. And, uh, and, and, and Jacob says, okay, hey, you want some porridge? I've made some, some stew for you. And if you have this stew, you can have this stew if you give me your birthright. Like, we'll pretend that I'm actually the firstborn. I want the birthright blessing, which in the ancient world meant a lot. And Esau's like, whatever, dude, I'm so hungry. Give me the stew. So he takes the stew. And then shortly after that, Jacob dresses up with his mother's help, no less, dresses up and puts like animal skin on his arms because apparently Esau was a hairy dude and Jacob goes into the tent where his dad Isaac is losing his eyesight and he says who who is this who are you what is your name and he says it, it is I Esau he says you sound like Jacob but you feel like Esau I mean the Bible's full of these amazing stories and so early on Jacob's always trying to find an angle but after doing that he starts to get scared he realizes he's done it now. So his mom says, you better get out of Dodge, son. You better get out of here. Not really Dodge, but, you know, their, their hometown. And so he leaves, and he goes to work for his uncle named Laban. Only things start to backfire. His uncle starts deceiving him. And so he thinks, I'm going to work for seven years, and I'll get Laban's daughter named Rachel, except that he gets Leah. And then he works another seven years, and then he gets Rachel. And if you think that must have been a dysfunctional household... I just want you to know your family fits in the story because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family fit in the story. Okay, so anyway, so he gets these two daughters now, and then he works for Laban six more years to try to keep the business going and get all this livestock, and finally he decides to flee. Fear in Jacob's life becomes such a pronounced theme. We won't read all these verses, but in Genesis 31, Laban catches Jacob trying to flee quietly. And he says, what are you doing? Why are you taking my grandchildren? Why are you taking all this stuff and you don't want me to know about it? And Jacob's like, well, I was scared that you were going to take him back. Imagine what it's like to live with such fear that you're always trying to work an angle because you think somebody's going to take it from you. It's going to be gone. I better. And then he, not only was he afraid that Laban would take his family, he's also afraid that Esau would take revenge. The very next chapter, he's coming to meet Esau, his twin brother, after 20 years of not seeing each other. And his servants say, hey, Esau's coming. He's got 400 men with him. Jacob's like, okay, okay, I got a plan. Let's divide everyone in two camps. And that way, if he attacks one camp, the other camp will be free. If you find yourself always devising contingency plans you may be living a life dominated by fear. Jacob was always devising contingency plans so that he could take control, so he could leverage something for his own advantage because fear was poisoning all of his relationships. Jacob became a cheater and a manipulator 
arguably to escape his own fears. See, fear actually runs in Jacob's family. Abraham, Genesis 20, tells us the story of Abraham, Jacob's grandpa, who one time, this is the man of faith, by the way, Abraham, the father of faith. After being called the father of faith, Abraham is so terrified that they're going to kill him because his wife is really good looking that he lies and says, no, this is my sister. In other words, he puts his wife in a very compromising situation to save his own neck. That's going to create some marriage problems. Okay? Fear was in Abraham's life. Isaac. We always think about Abraham offering Isaac. But do you know Genesis, after Isaac is offered as a boy and God says, no, don't do it. Genesis refers to God as the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. Isaac had an impression of God that was maybe just a little bit full of fear. Isaac himself, Jacob's dad, would also be in a situation where he was afraid that another king would want his wife and therefore kill him. And so he lies too. And he's like, Rebecca, my sister, (laughs) sister. What is wrong with you guys? Isaac fears for his life, lies about his wife. Jacob's sons will eventually fear for their own survival in Egypt. Genesis 42 and 43. Fear is such a woven-in part of Jacob's family story. And I wonder what it is for you. How much unhealthy fear is poisoning your relationships? Now, I say unhealthy fear on purpose because fear has a very beautiful purpose When fear can rightly warn us of threats, we can say, this is not a safe person, right? And I think we've learned how to say, okay, that is not a safe person in my life. I need to have a boundary here because that that has a story there connected with abuse or trauma. And so that's not a safe person. Fear can rightly help you lead to good and healthy boundaries. That's good fear. But there's an unhealthy fear where you're importing in scripts and you're applying it to the wrong situations and it's destroying your relationships. It's making you put people you love in vulnerable situations because you're afraid for your own life. So you sabotage your own relationships. You bail out of friendships before they could really get too deep because you know they're going to reject me once they know. So maybe if I end it first... I knew a girl like that in college. Maybe if I end it first. How much is unhealthy fear is in your relationships? Fear that she will reject you. Fear that he will hurt you. Fear that they, your friends, will betray you. Fear that another authority figure will abandon you. She says, I I can't deal with that. I don't want to. How much unhealthy fear is in our relationships? And how? How can unhealthy fear be broken? Is there any hope of this changing? How can an unhealthy fear be broken? In the Jacob story, it's really beautiful because you heard the Old Testament reading this morning. It says there came a moment where Jacob died and his sons felt alone and were terrified. They thought, how do I do this? How do I live like this? We're in danger of starving to death. Our dad has died. There's this guy in Egypt named Joseph. I mean, what, what are we going to do? 
Genesis 50, verse 19, they finally come, you know, they had sold Joseph to slave traders. Joseph, through a series of up and downs in his own journey, what a fascinating story. He somehow becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt, right? He's up there. He's over the storehouse in Egypt. He is the answer to their fear of famine. But will he be good or will he punish them? Isn't that the fear that we have? It's like, okay, okay, God, you are the answer, but will you be good or will you punish me? Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then he says it again, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Fear is broken by loving kindness. Fear is broken by loving kindness. Jacob's, uh, Joseph's decision to act kindly towards his brothers, to show them loving kindness, Joseph's decision to do that broke four generations of fear. Broke four generations of fear. Think about this. Joseph himself was falling into the family script. Joseph, remember, Abraham had lied about his, you know, who he was and who his wife was. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob was always working in an angle. Joseph was, was starting down that road. His brothers came in. He's like, I'm going to mess with them a little bit. Does the disguise thing, puts a cup in their sacks of grain. He's just trying to trick him. He's playing the same game. It's like, dude, this is in your bones to cheat, manipulate, trick, deceive. And finally, Joseph says, what am I doing? What am I doing? My dad is dead. Jacob is dead. Can we let the legacy of deception end? And so Joseph takes off his disguise, welcomes his brothers, weeps, and says, I will show you kindness. Do you know that whatever the family story is for you, that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can break that story with you. That it can stop. The cycle of fear can be interrupted. Because Joseph said, we're done. We're done living and reacting out of fear. We're going to break this. And actually, for us, the truth is it's not four generations, it's generation after generation, all the way back to the first man and the first woman in the garden. This is our legacy of fear. Adam and Eve sin, and they start to hide, and God comes after and says, hey, hey, what are you doing? Where are you, Adam? He says, we heard your voice in the garden, but we were exposed, and so we hid, and we were afraid, and so we hid. From the very beginning, our story has been to, to run, to hide, to be afraid. But from the very beginning, God's MO has been to seek, to love, to come after. Sometimes we think, well, I'm hiding because I know God's standing with a big stick. That's not true at all. God comes after Adam and says, what are you doing? Come here, let me clothe you. And the whole story of redemption is the story of God coming after us while we keep saying, you're my enemy, God, you're my enemy, you're my enemy. And, it, and Paul says, even when we insisted on treating him like our enemy, God came down. 
And Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, the true and better Joseph. Jesus, who just like Joseph said, look, what the enemy meant for evil, where the forces of corrupt politics and religion colluded together to crucify the Son of God. Jesus said, yeah, what the enemy meant for evil, God was working for your good and actually for the good of the world. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who opens up not the storehouses of grain in Egypt. Jesus who opens up the storehouse of the Father's love and says, look, it's all yours. It's all yours. Here you are living in fear like you're a starving beggar saying, who will love me? Who will love me? Will it be you? Will it be you? Will it be you? And Jesus says, hey, it's over now. Do not fear. The storehouse of the Father's love has been opened to you. It's yours. It's yours. This is why John, writing in 1 John, says this. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Older translations, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. There is no fear in love, John goes on to say, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. How do we break the cycle of fear that goes on through generation through generation? It's when we're able to love, but how are we able to love? It's when we realize how we have been loved by God. You can't change the theme of fear. Fear will always be connected to a threat. And you may not be able to change all the different things in your life that trigger the fear. But you can get a new script. You can get a new script. And I think God, what he does when he adopts us into his families, he says, look, you've, you've, you've gained some very dark and painful scripts about your life. But I want to write my script in your heart. God is writing his script on our heart. A script that says, you are the beloved. You're the beloved daughter. You're the beloved son. And every time something triggers this up in you to say, oh, no, they're going to leave me. I want you to remember the truest script you've ever heard. You are a child of God, deeply and dearly loved. This Sunday is indeed Pentecost Sunday when we celebrate the giving of the Spirit. Paul said in Romans 5 that through the Holy Spirit, God has spread his love out in our hearts. How does this love take over and rewrite the story? It's through the Holy Spirit. Paul later says, it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness with us so that we have no longer received the spirit of fear, but the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to see and believe the truest script about you. You are a dearly loved child of God. Now, the way the brain works, psychologists say, even Ekman would say, he doesn't believe you can really erase a trigger. That the things that used to spark fear in you, it's not as if you can say, oh, no, no, I ne never makes me afraid. But even Ekman believes there is a way to weaken those triggers so they don't automatically lead you to the same path. And sometimes 
They talk about our brain as having these pathways, and I always visualize standing on the top of a hill. And if you pour a bucket of water down from the top of the hill, and there's already a trench that goes down and to the left, guess where the water is going to flow? Down and to the left. Once you form these pathways that say, every time I feel afraid, I just lash out at people, or I run away, or I hide, I don't, that's what I do. It will be no use to you to say, don't do that. It's like saying, pouring the water down the hill. It's like, don't go left. Oh, why'd you go left? Well, that's where their trench is. But I believe, my hypothesis to you this morning, I think that maybe what the Holy Spirit does is he digs a new trench. He digs a new trench that goes to the right. And so every time this trigger comes up, oh, I'm feeling fear. They're going to leave me. They're going to reject me. I I failed them. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. I'm not... uh." He said, wait a minute, same trigger, but the water's going in a different direction now. Where we start to say, yeah, I'm not enough, but I am a child of God. Yeah, I've failed, but I am deeply loved. And on and on it goes. We talk about the Spirit as being like breath. One old Christian practice is a breath prayer. A prayer that allows us to put the Spirit like breath, into our lungs again. And so whenever something arises, one of Brennan Manning's breath prayers was, Abba, I belong to you. So in the moment of anxiety or fear, Abba, I belong to you. That's a new trench that goes this way. Maybe for you it's the breath prayer that's as simple as, I'm yours. I'm yours, Jesus. I'm beloved. Beloved, I know these things come flaring up, but I need a new script. I need a new trench that redirects this. I think that's what the Lord wants to do in our hearts, to help us see and believe and know. And when that love comes rushing into our hearts, driving out our own fear, it changes the way we treat others. Imagine... Loving, not from a place of fear. So instead of having codependent or dysfunctional relationships, because I just want to keep them happy, you're able to love freely because you've been loved. Because you've been loved. I imagine that takes a long time. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit that we're signing up for this morning. Amen? Would you bow your heads this morning? We're going to pray a prayer of confession, and confession, if we didn't believe in the love of God, confession would be the worst thing ever, because who wants to say they failed? The thing we want to do when we don't believe we're loved is hide. We don't want to confess. I'd rather not have confession every week, thank you very much. I'd rather come to church and pretend that I haven't failed. Do you know why we can do confession every week? It's because we believe we are loved. We have nothing to hide. We can say, God, I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. But God, thank you for loving me. That's why we can confess.